It it's a process. Like I'm not gonna lie, it's a process. And and it, I think there are kind of um, universal stages to it. The way I see it. So I'm gonna zoom out a little bit and say that from my human development training and my trauma recovery training and my own personal experience, I I believe the goal of recovery. And this is this goes back to something we talked about before for everyone that feels they're carrying around pain that just is unresolved, whether they want to call it trauma, they don't want to call it trauma. Who get right? There's just unresolved pain that gives you this chronic sense that your life isn't what you want it to be. That the, the path you need to walk is one of attachment restoration. And this is something I talk about as many opportunities as I can because I think it's so important for people to understand what the goal is, right? Because if we're just kind of wandering, we're like, I don't know, I just want to get better. And you're like, but just point me in a direction, right? Like, give me an, like, where am I headed? And so for me, I always tell people, you're headed towards attachment restoration. And that really means that you've restored your secure, stable attachment to yourself, like all your parts to yourself, and you're able to have a secure, stable relationship with another human. And often those track each other. The reason we don't have stable, healthy relationships with others is because internally we don't have a stable, healthy relationship to ourselves. right? Like they kind of go hand in hand, but I often see people try to work on just one at a time, right? And and from my standpoint, true recovery that's going to lead you to permanent healing, you need to understand how both are going. That's Dr. Tanner Wallace. Welcome to the Interesting Humans podcast. Hey, welcome you beautiful people out there in podcast land. Before we get started, I wanted to express some gratitude. This podcast recently crossed a milestone with 2,500 downloads. No big deal, you might say. But I want to express my gratitude to each and every one of you who has tuned in to Interesting Humans over the past year and a half. This podcast is a labor of love and passion for me. It would not be possible without your interest in the people and conversations I bring to these internet airwaves. I thought I would share some statistics with you. Most of you listen on your phone, 79%, while 17% listen on computers. You come from literally all over the world and all over the U.S., from New York to California to my little corner of the U.S., Michigan. But you also come from... Germany, Canada, France, Italy, Australia, Pakistan, India, Sweden, Norway, and Russia, to name a few. Like I said, these figures might seem small, but I'm blown away by the reception to interesting humans. Thank you. I think I'll keep doing this for a little while, if that's okay. Now today's topic. We've all heard about post-traumatic stress disorder, often referred to and even minimized in today's lexicon as PTSD. It is a psychiatric disorder that sometimes occurs in people who have experienced or witnessed a horrific event such as a natural disaster, a serious accident, a terrorist act, think 9-11, war or combat or rape or who have been threatened with sexual violence or serious harm. Our grandfathers and great-grandfathers may have come across PTSD in the form of combat fatigue or shell shock. 
But trauma doesn't just befall combat veterans. In today's podcast episode, Dr. Tanner Wallace, in her most transparent and beautiful self, explores how trauma experienced as a child from abuse or neglect impacts our lives as adults and our relationships with our spouses and lovers and children and friends and colleagues. Unrealized trauma experiences children wrecks havoc on our adult lives and often destroys the very relationships we hold the most dear. Trauma is always context-bound, she says. Tanner spent 20 years studying human development before she pivoted to work exploring the nature of childhood trauma. The pivot came about as a result of big problems in her second marriage and her parenting in which Tanner's own trauma resurfaced from sexual assaults as an adolescent and teenager and some abuse at the hands of a parent. The realization sent Tanner off on a completely new path, utilizing what she learned about human development. She created a platform called the Relational Healing Lab. She now uses her podcast and Instagram to talk the language of childhood trauma. Through her work, Tanner has unlocked the voices for thousands of childhood trauma survivors. Ultimately, Tanner says you can heal from childhood trauma through the right kind of work. I'll let Tanner explain. In our conversation, she is brutally honest about her own struggle to heal and what she learned about the immense difficulties of healing from childhood trauma, particularly unrealized trauma. Look, people, this one is personal, and that is probably why it is among the most transformative conversations I've ever had on Interesting Humans. True confession, for the past six months, I've been in therapy to address some rather large difficulties in my own life. I've uncovered my own unrealized childhood trauma suffered by neglect from my parents, including anger and violence from my father, who is now deceased. I'm so grateful the universe has sent Tanner across my radar. She offers insight, hope, and love on the way to finding peace for childhood trauma survivors. I hope you enjoy meeting Dr. Tanner Wallace. Let's get started. I want to, to start with a few definitions. Um, okay. That's because it's easy to, to kick things around. What is trauma? Oh, that's such a good question. So you're starting with like a deceptively simple but very difficult <laughs> question. Um, so first, I'm just I'm super excited to be here and like thank you for having me. Um, it's always nice to be on like podcasts that are part of the community that we're building. So thank you for the invitation. Um, I think trauma for me, and I probably could point in like someone somewhere said this and it stuck. So I don't know. I actually tried to find in the books that I read repeatedly, like who did someone say this directly? So if I'm quoting them, I can give them credit, but I couldn't find it. So I don't know if I've pulled it from a couple different sources or there is somebody that I should be citing. Maybe one of your listeners will know and they'll give me the answer to this question. Um, but I, I think of trauma as a human experience where the resources available to you are insignificant to cope with the terror of what's happening. So one of the studies that is cited when people talk about this is studies of children after in the United States after the World Trade Towers um, uh, you know, terrorist attack that kids that had 
witnessed it, were close up, saw what was happening, saw humans, you know, ending their life because they were so um, in such dire straits in the buildings um, before they they fell, collapsed, that kids that had safe adults that could process the event with them did not develop PTSD. It was the children that also witnessed the same event, but had no one, no adult scaffolding or processing the terror of that event. And so trauma is always context bound. You know, Hmm. there are some specific events that in the scope of what is terrifying as humans would, you know, we can all agree that that's a terrifying situation. So that is a likely thing that could result in a traumatizing experience but it's always need to be understood in the context of the human interaction post the event happening. And I think that is really important because in my world, I will interact with some people that will say, yes, but I only, and I always have to say, but I don't, it's not a comparison. It is at the time you're experiencing the event, did your resources to cope with it rise to the significance or did the terror of the event outpace the resources? And if the terror of the event outpaced the resources available to you, it is going to be a traumatizing event and it is going to be likely to result in trauma. And I mean, there's distinctions then between like developmental trauma and complex trauma and acute trauma, like, mm-hmm. but, but that's, that's the, the, the kind of broad definition that I found really productive and useful, um, not just in a classifying sense from like some intellectual pursuit, but just in a lived, like helping people make sense of their suffering. So, so, um, so yeah. if someone, if someone believes they have experienced trauma, the word is to take them at their word. It is to to believe it because it's their experience that defines whether they feel trauma or experience trauma um, or not. Is is that right? Um, That's what I believe. I mean, I think this runs into, you know, complicated waters of, you know, who's accountable for what. And, you know, as Mm -hmm. humans and in our society, I think we are in what I hope to be a really important kind of progressive level up societally around, you know, what, who has rights to what and how we're treated. I mean, humans have a long, dark history of not treating people, you know, with dignity and honoring people's humanity. It does feel like in small ways, small micro shifts that generations, but I'm some 44 turning 45 in January even just what my kids have access to in terms of understanding their own rights as a human, um, you know, is so much different. And so it's a long way of saying, I think for a long time, who got to claim trauma was defined by power structures Mm -hmm. and defined by who has skin in that game, who Mm -hmm. has to change behavior, who has to enact policy, who has to lose resources if we're honoring these stories. And I think we're slowly, hopefully, just starting to see some of that unravel a little bit with the collective power of of largely technological advances that allow us to be more connected um, with more people more quickly um, in networks. How do you, how does someone in your experience, how does someone know whether they are 
suffering or a victim of trauma? What are the what are the hallmarks for the individual yeah. in, in that? It's another really good question. You know, and, and this has such a generational slant to it for me. I mean, I, I've studied human development for a long time. So I think mm-hmm. I always think of things in like cohorts and generations and longitudinally. And I do think there is some cohort effect to this. And I'll, I'll kind of explain that, that I think for... You know, anyone who's like 30 or older, your story is probably, if you experienced trauma in your childhood or adolescence, it probably, and it was persistent and chronic and you couldn't really escape it and just kind of compiled one event after another, maybe some like early adulthood trauma, secondary adult trauma, our brains are incredible, right? And so they adapt by basically taking you offline So the story of survivors that are older is largely like, I don't know, like my 20s and 30s, I was just kind of like doing things. And then something just, I call it like the rock bottom moment where something undeniable happens in your life that is so, just seems so out of line with how you believe yourself to be as a human, um, the life you imagined living that you just can't you can't deny that there's something here that is really not right for you. And so, so there's almost yeah. like a triggering, uh, something happens as yeah. an adult that is a, a trigger that, that sets off this mechanism inside you where you, you're taken back I think and so. experience something. Or it's just, or, or something <clears throat> happens that's so unexplainable. I think that's like something external happens that's so unexplainable. And then you be like, well, what, how can I explain this? Like, this doesn't make sense. What's going on? And then I think people start to search, people start to look for resources and, you know, they stumble upon an Instagram account, a book, a therapist, a coach, somebody or something, a YouTube video, and someone is describing their lived experience so precisely that you're like, I have never had someone describe this to me so incredibly like consistent with my lived experience. Like, I I think this is me. I think I have trauma. I think I have unresolved pain from childhood or unresolved pain from adolescence. Mm -hmm. And they kind of go from there. I think the younger generations are more aware of what events are likely to cause trauma. They're more aware of what a dysfunctional family looks like. I mean, if you're just on Instagram and you're taking in free content you can get a definition for gaslighting. You can get a definition for a narcissistic mm-hmm. parent. You can get a definition for like mm-hmm. abuse. So there's just, their, their education is just more sharp. And so I think they're more apt to say, Hey, this isn't right. I need help. I need support. Now, whether they get the help or support is a question for us as a society, but I think they're more aware that what's happening is not right for them or not. Okay. Versus many older people that just, didn't even understand that something wasn't okay. And so they're, they're dealing with the symptoms, the consequences and kind of backwards mapping. How did I get here? It, it is fascinating to, when you think about the, the generations, the generational approach that when we were younger and throughout our, probably our adolescence or into adulthood, yeah. um, those of us over 30 were taught to, to buck up, move yeah. past it. You're okay. I mean, with some exceptions, we're, uh, for most of us, we're familiar with PTSD in the sense of 
of a soldier in battle. And then you brought up that the World Trade Center, that obviously was a case for for PTSD. But I, I also think it can be a fine line. And, and it, you talked about social media. Social media has, my fear, a way of dumbing down uh, the lived experience, as you say, of people so that um, trauma could be thrown in with any other experiential <laughs> type of thing. You're sad. Yeah. Well, you're not depressed. You're just sad. Or you are depressed or, yeah. or you did experience trauma. I think it's a, it's a fine line that we could almost by democratizing or normalizing this experience, it might minimize it for, for someone. Yeah. That's an interesting, an interesting kind of thought. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, we can just let that stand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so, so how many people, so this gets to my next question yeah. is how many people do you think are walking around with buried trauma? Oh, that's a good one. Um, kind of the walking wounded. Yeah. I, I mean, in, it, it's again, a, I, I, I see this a little bit generationally. Um, I think it depends on, you know, what generation your parents are. I think, you know, a generation even like 60s and 70s and 80s, I think they had a very different set of parents than, you know, people in their 50s, 40s and 30s have a different set of parents than kids that were younger. Um, and you notice I said parents, because for me, you know, most of the trauma that I'm talking about, thinking about, writing mm-hmm. about and trying to help people through really starts in childhood with parents. Um, and I would say way more than we think, like Mm -hmm. way, way more than you think. Now, whether that develops into complex trauma, right? Because there's a difference, right? So I would say, and I get this from Patrick Tian, who I've worked with and spent some time with. He's a trauma therapist. He said to me one time, it just stuck with me. He's like, you know what, Tanner? Almost everyone has either a tricky or traumatizing family. Hardly anyone has like a mm-hmm. good enough family. And those are like the unicorns, right? More and more people have good enough families, but most of us tricky to traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And then it's like kind of a role of the, you know, lock of whether that tricky family, you have a few like life events that then result in kind of a traumatizing experience, right? Or your tricky family, like you have some good luck things go pretty well. You pick a partner that's good enough. Like, and then it just kind of flows okay for you. Uh, so, so it's, it's a lot more than I think people realize. I think why I brought in complex trauma is the recovery process is very different for people depending on the depth and severity of what they actually experienced and what the aftermath was. So I think there's probably a lot of people with trauma that I would be like, yep, that's trauma. Yep. That's trauma. You know, um, the, you know, experience of being a kid on a bus in kindergarten and someone takes your book bag and like throws it all over a yard and like, go get it, you know, and then your parent happened to be working. And so like, no one was there. That's going to kind of stick with you, you know, like that's going to stay with you all the way through to, you know, um, parent marries an abusive step parent, knows the step parents abusing a child and doesn't say or do anything. Basically, like I choose my partner over you. 
You know, so mm-hmm. those are very different experiences, both traumatizing. The recovery is going to look different for both of those in terms of unburdening that result, unresolved pain um, that's carried around. But I think way, way more people carry trauma um, around than, than we even acknowledge now. If you become an astute observer of people, yeah. uh, as, as I know you are, and, and I have friends, and well, I'd like to think that I am as well, you begin to see um, behaviors, uh, you begin to see them act out in certain ways, which, you know, gives me pause, begins me to, I always wonder about people's motivations, why they do that, how they are, how they respond. And um, of course, it's easy to get angry when someone cuts you off in the grocery line or, or ignores you or um, a variety of things, but then having a little bit of compassion for or being curious about where that comes from, if a lot of the population does experience this on some spectrum of the of the trauma scale, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you can you can imagine what it how it plays out as an adult in both good and, and bad ways. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, you've um you've spoken about different types of trauma: acute, chronic, complex. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could help again with some definitions um, yeah. of of those. Yeah. So I actually think Frank Anderson has like the best definitions. I'm just going to be kind of like parroting what he's taught me in his trainings and, and reading his books. But, you know, this idea that um, developmental trauma, which can also be complex trauma, but has a really specific kind of take on it, which is it really focuses on when an event happened and, and thinking about the developmental time period that the trauma was occurring because that's going to have very kind of a unique trauma imprint in terms of how it shows up later, how it stunts particular achievement of normative developmental tasks. And, and I think that's fascinating. That has been, you know, one of the most profound marriages between my professional life and my Mm -hmm. personal life. When I recognized all this knowledge I had about human development was so relevant to my personal journey and helping other people make sense of why some things are so triggering for them and other things are not. Mm-hmm. Typically there's that developmental imprint that can just unlock so much recovery like space for you and your own self-healing journey. Complex trauma is just this idea that repeated chronic traumatizing events happened over a long duration of time and What is interesting about that is that it really has profound effects on consequences on thought processing and how one processes information, how one's nervous system cues thought processing. Uh, So so that's sort of uh, a way of thinking about why, you know, a childhood and adolescent that continually isn't meeting developmental needs is continually full of neglect and abuse why the consequences are so devastating because it is, I mean, I say this, like it's a brain injury and I'm, I'm waiting for some like neuroscientists to be like, Tanner, you can't say that. (laughs) But but I'm like, I read all the research studies. I I studied it. Like to me, I feel like on solid ground to say it's a brain injury because it affects Mm. how your brain functions. 
so that's complex trauma. Acute trauma is just one single event, um, a major event, you know, like a mugging at gunpoint, a mm-hmm. natural disaster, a rape, um, a, a particular, you know, graphic scene in, in military mm-hmm. service, first responders, mm-hmm. um, that those kinds of uh, the death of a child, if you're witnessing it car accident so we could go on and on but it's like a, it's like so, a single event that happens in time so it, and and there is a you talk about this concept of a brain injury that is that where and we're going to talk about it i think a little bit later okay um trauma attachment trauma distortions you kind of get locked into a cycle yeah. because of of that experience that frankly doesn't work as an adult right it doesn't yeah. doesn't serve you yes um so uh, thank you for that. I, I want to turn a little bit to you, to your story yeah. and um, to your healing journey. Um, you mentioned, and I know this might be tender ground, so forgive me, but yeah. but you mentioned in a podcast that you were the victim of three separate sexual assaults. Yeah, I've just started being able to like say those words out loud. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, first of all, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, but but I wonder. Uh, because it's so central to your journey and who you are, I wonder if you can talk about um, your experience and and how uh, that that was traumatizing. Certainly, anyone listening can understand how it would be, but I wonder if yeah. you can talk about that a little bit. I'm just so grateful you asked this question because it's so well timed for me because I really am starting to find my voice um, around this, and there's just such a um, I don't know. I think there's parts of me that are just like, wow, we started here for once. Like, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I feel like there's other parts of me that have like wanted to start the story somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm actually really grateful to, to kind of start my story here because it is, for me, I'm coming to understand really core and central to a lot of the, um, the stuff that I've had to heal and unburden and, and what's made things so difficult. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for any survivor of sexual assault and actually, you know, in the upcoming months, like my, my kind of 2022, like, okay, Tanner is I need to connect more with sexual assault communities because it's not, they're not bridges I've built yet. And I'm really mm-hmm. eager to do so because I'm at a space where I'm ready to. So someone may be listening to this who's like deeply familiar with like the sexual assault community and be like, oh, she's such a newbie. She's like uh-huh. beginning to talk about this stuff. So so you're really catching me at the beginning of trying to make sense of this. But I've, I've rest assured anyone who's listening, my as a really transparent trauma um, survivor, I have set a standard for myself that I never talk about anything publicly that I haven't processed myself. And so that's why I'm saying this mm. is perfectly timed because I'm starting to talk about it. I'm ready to talk about mm-hmm. it. So if anyone had caretaker parts that were like, oh no, is she going to be right. okay? I promise you that I am okay. And this is like safe for me. It's safe for Christian. It's safe for all of you listening because I am fully in self right now. And I just want to make sure that everyone hears that and knows that. And if I'm not, I will certainly pause, talk, narrate mm-hmm. what's going on for me. Um, so for me, I think it's, it's really helped explain, um, why some things have hurt so much in my life, because you just to go back even to like the definition I said, you know, any single event, 
when you have someone to process it with you, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, honestly, my story is, you know, kind of some bad luck, honestly, because we're, you know, we all can be in the wrong places at the wrong time. Right. And a context where I was way more likely to be in the situations I was in. Right. So it's like both and. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, when you're a kid and I'll say, you know, especially a girl and no one is paying attention, no one knows where you're coming and going and you are raised in an environment with pretty horrific verbal abuse, psychological abuse, um, minor physical abuse, but you just, you get the sense that you're not worth anything or you're not, you're not worthy of respect or dignity. And, and when you're raised in an environment like that from a young age, you show up in the world like that, right? Like, oh, I'm, I don't, I don't even know how to step into personal power. I don't even know how to hold space for myself. And the really sad truth is, although I hope this is changing, I see old movies and I see things you wouldn't see in movies now. Um, For a young girl, that's a very dangerous space to be raised in because already society is sort of already set up against you for being able to hold your personal power, especially when it comes to your body. Mm-hmm. And something Gabramante says in his documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma, predators prey on the weak, mm-hmm. right? So that's where I started to be like, you know, I had some bad luck, but I was also more likely <laughs> to be in the wrong place at the wrong time because of all of this background. And you know, it's really interesting because in my own healing journey, um, my first sexual assault happened in sixth grade on a bus um, with a boy I knew who was like, he was sitting next to me, kind of trying to put his hands down my shirt, my pants, and people were laughing. And I remember being so humiliated by that. Like, I was just like, oh my gosh, like, wow. And and my family was very... Um, sexually constrained. So I know some people grow up in families that are like sexually off. Like, it's just like weird. People are talking, but like my family was the opposite. Like I didn't get to, I wasn't allowed to watch TV. We had one TV, there was one chair. So I was like very sheltered in a lot of ways. Like I just didn't have access to stuff. So in my world, this was like, whoa, this is like really hard for me to process. And what's fascinating and, and like the healing journey that was one of the first parts that I unburdened. Like I remember when I first started turning towards this, my one of my daughters was 11 at the time. She's she's aged past mm-hmm. this, like two years ago. And I remember sitting in her room and being like, oh my gosh. Like just mm-hmm. soaking and be like, I was this, I was her. Like this, mm-hmm. she's so innocent. She's so just pink. And like, I don't know. Just, as you were, yeah, as you were at that yeah, age. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and even just you saying that there was like an instant, like I wasn't innocent. Right. So like, that's how deep this goes. Cause immediately mm. when you said that a part jumped in and was like, no, I wasn't, but, but, but I'm going to like ask that part to step back. And I was like, I, mm. I, I just had no frame of reference that, that people could do that. Or like, that was a threat or that was like a concern. Interestingly, I kind of 
rebounded from it. Like, I, I mean, I, I kind of like, I mean, humans are incredibly resilient. We're, we're amazing, right? Adapting. So like, I think I was kind of like, okay, like not great kind of, but, but then, but then there's, there's a follow-up to that where that same boy that did that thing, um, wrote all, like, so we had this in middle school, we had these like flimsy yearbooks. I don't know if kids still have that or mm-hmm. not, but like, and, and you could write things in them. So he stole mine and wrote in red marker, all this stuff all over, like you're a slut whore. Like, I mean, just horribly, I mean, talk about traumatized human. I mean, he must've mm-hmm. been such a, tra- I mean, gosh, only mm-hmm. knows what happened to this other 11 year old boy mm-hmm. who's doing, you know what I mean? So like, I can't even mm-hmm. imagine, but the turning point for me was when my parent at the time saw that and how they responded to it. And I'm not going to go into the details of that because that parent is still unsafe and, and it will, will make my life very hard if they hear this podcast and there's details. I'm still navigating that as a very public person mm-hmm. um, just so I feel safe. I'm not going to go into the details of sort of how that parent handled it. Um but that's what made it like the point of no return for me because that's when I was like, Oh my gosh, this is all my fault. Mm. Like I did this. I, I, I attracted this, like this is, this is my thing that I'm carrying around. And then it was like, whatever anyone wants to do to me, I, I don't have any, I'm like worthless. So yeah, you want to do this? Yeah. You want to do that? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And that's been so hard to reclaim as an adult and and just in complete transparency, I have been able to, in my adult life, completely, those parts of me have been so shoved and so exiled in my own system that I developed this, like, I call her my porn star part, this other part. I, yeah, I remember that. I was going to ask you about her. Yeah. Allowed me to be like, actually, there's some power in this. Like, you can actually flip this and not be a victim, but actually, like, mm-hmm. manipulate and control people through sex. Mm-hmm. And that was my MO, my 20s, my 30s, like, even my current partner. Like, I feel like that was such a huge part of our attraction, like, how it kind of, you know, set the stage for us. And as a couple, it's, it's been like, even just the last few months, like really trying to understand how to heal that part of me and be able Mm -hmm. to show up in a sexual encounter, not blended Mm -hmm. with a part, but just Mm -hmm. Tanner and like my heart and soul go out to every single survivor who's listening to this and was like, yes, like, how do you restore something that was taken from you mm-hmm. and just make it pure again, make it safe mm-hmm. again, make it like, it's just such a journey. It's such a journey. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about IFS a little bit and I can see that um, that porn star was actually trying to protect you. Yeah to take yeah. care of you and yeah. to manage through that, through that trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. You also mentioned, um, I think some behaviors that also came out of this were uh, an eating disorder 
or or a, a disordered relationship with yeah. food. Yeah, I'd say that's uh, the way to describe it. Kind yeah. of a disordered relationship with food. Yeah. Uh, a disordered relationship with exercise. Yep. And and with uh, some perfectionism. Yeah. Uh, as well, all tied up into into that. You um. So you carried this um, into adulthood. For you were driven. Yeah, you were a driven, uh, a really driven person. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you mentioned that you did therapy. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about this in your bio on your website. You mentioned that you did therapy, but that it it wasn't really working. No. And and what do you think? What do you think was happening or not happening in therapy that that regarding complex trauma? Um, yeah. Is it is it just a matter of a, a therapist not understanding it, or or is it that you weren't revealing, you weren't able to go there? Yeah. Um, what what happened? What do you think was going on in therapy? Because we we typically you know we go to therapists in order to to be released from. Yeah. If, if we discover, if we're aware, yeah. um, or maybe in therapy, we become aware. But what do you think was happening or not happening in therapy to, to, to address this? I've wondered this too. So I can't say if it was me believing I was sharing and actually not sharing what I needed to share for someone to like be able to connect the dots. I don't know if I just happened to see therapists that weren't trauma informed, couldn't see the signs, you know, didn't didn't really see the world through that lens, um, or like I just presented in such a way that they just were like, "Well, yeah, I, I don't know, I'm not sure." I mean, I, I think why it never helped is that no one, until I was introduced to internal family system and this idea mm -hmm. of parts, I couldn't see how I was so blended with so many different parts, you know? So mm -hmm. I would probably show up in a therapy session and mm -hmm. all my wounded younger parts are like, fuck no, like we're mm -hmm. not doing this. It hasn't worked. Like we're not telling our story again. And so the therapist probably saw performance parts, you know, kind of intellectual parts, <laughs> like parts mm -hmm. that were like, okay, we can do this, you know, and, and maybe some sadness, but you know, it just didn't work for me. And so either I had therapists that were missing major red flags or the parts of me that showed up in therapy just didn't give the therapist mm -hmm. the information they needed. And I didn't even know that I was kind of had different parts of me running the show at different points in time. What a conundrum, right? I mean, to, to be there to, to get relief yet, yet their parts are, are not allowing you to, to open the door yeah. because they need protection. Yeah. And, and it, it's so fascinating because in my latest kind of therapeutic pursuits, um, I work with an IFS therapist, internal family systems, and I know we'll talk about that more. So if listeners are listening. They're like, I don't know what she's talking about. We'll get to it, but let me just say this real quickly. And then you'll be like, oh, I know what she was saying now. Part of what I've had to do lately is actually work with that 14 year old part mm -hmm. that actually I think has the worst burdens of my, all my, my whole inner system and allow myself to kind of blend with that part during therapy with my therapist, because that part oh. did not trust the therapist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's, it's all parts of you need different things from your therapist coach. And so that's what the parts perspective affords, but maybe we should talk about parts because I'm like now 
leaning sure, in. Sure. Is that okay? So, so we'll we'll jump ahead. You're totally screwing up my script, oh, no. but that's okay. Well, okay. It's okay. No, no, no. That's okay. okay. You we've opened the door, so let's talk about that. So, okay. um, internal family systems is a, okay. a methodology for approaching uh, therapy. Yep. Uh, commonly, it's also called IFS. Why don't you give us um, your understanding, kind of the lay of the land of what yep. internal family systems is? Yes. So I was introduced to it by accident. So I you know, was on Instagram talking about relationships, talking about some of my personal journey, mostly focused on marriage at first. Um, is how I started sharing my story and sharing content and what I learned. And I also had a podcast. And, and so, you know, I follow accounts. I'm like, oh, maybe this would be a good person to have on. And one of those people is now actually my therapist coach, Justin Martin. And he came on and he talked about this thing called internal family systems. And I knew a little bit about it because I was following his Instagram account. But when he was on, at the whole, like the whole interview, I was like, I just, you're blowing my mind. I just... I can't understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like this is just this is so different. So I actually had him on again because I tried some of the stuff he suggested, and I had such a profound breakthrough moment in my own healing. I was like, you have to. You had never heard of this. You had never never heard of this approach. Wow. So this is like August of 2020. So not Mm -hmm. that like over a year, a little over a year ago. So IFS is founded by Richard Schwartz. It's been around for a really long time. Everyone kind of ostracized him largely as like someone who was kind of had a kooky theory about stuff. And, you know, I don't know that just he stayed with it. There was enough people that was like, this is insane. This is incredible. This is so powerful that eventually I feel like IFS finally got its day. Right. So it's kind of like this creative genius who had this breakthrough that like people couldn't even recognize at the time because the paradigm was so different. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like rejected for being so different versus evaluated on its own merits, Um, which I'm sorry for interrupting. But that is that is part of what the problem has been in that model is the reluctance to accept new approaches, new methodologies. Right. Yeah. Well, because it's not because it's 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 like the paradigm is completely different. It's built Mm -hmm. on. And so it's fundamental differences. We're not a mono mind like we have different sub-personalities, parts, however you want to think about it, but our our minds are not unified. We do not have a mono mind. And so many religious beliefs, you know, um, literature, traditions are all founded on this idea that we have a mono mind. So I think whenever you present people with this radical deviation from what you've known the world to be. And you're like, actually, you don't have a mono mind. Your mind has parts. I mean, it's just, people are like, what? They just like reject it right away because it's just, it's too different, right? So it's this idea that we actually don't have a mono mind or the human experience is having parts of us and parts of us can have their own sub-personalities, their own points of view, their own perspectives, their own intentions and their own strategies for action. And there's been some people that have tried to link the theory, like, so it developed from a clinical experience, and then a theory was built around it with, like, clinical observations, right? So clinical observations, observing in the real world, build theory around it, build a model around it. It's successful on the ground, keep evolving. In response to what's successful for clients, we'll keep evolving the therapeutic modality. Now, over the last, like, five years, there, you know, people have tried to, you know, conduct research studies to understand the mechanisms by which it's effective, right? And that's still pretty baby research. I mean, there are positive findings, but, you know, 
I'm a scientist by training and I even have to say the scientific evidence is not at the level it would need to be to be like, yes, this is why it works. This is why, you mm-hmm. know, so mm-hmm. I'm just, I have to be honest about that. Like I know it works because it's worked for me. It's worked for my clients. Um, the community is beautiful. I'm in it now because I'm training officially in the IFS Institute. Um, so I have no question for me that it's life-changing. However, the science is still catching up with the, the modality and essentially, it's, it, there's this idea that there's three kind of categories of parts inside of us. There are wounded younger parts, which are kind of frozen in time, you know, kind of like inner children. So like, if you think about it, like inner child, I'm like, no, I think we have like inner children, right? Most people don't just have one inner child. You have kind of multiple inner children, especially if you have complex trauma. And then we have these fascinating protector parts and protector parts have kind of two genres in them. They're like the managers that are kind of like leading the way to be like, we don't want anything bad to happen. So let us take the lead. And people have fascinating managers. People have like all different kinds of managers, just depending on how they grew up, what their you know sort of genetic makeup is, like environmental cultivation of different managers, what was rewarded in their environment, culturally, what are their legacy burdens, such fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. And then we have a set of protectors that are more like firefighters. And they try to like kind of dampen, bring your whole nervous system into a state of um, where you can survive whatever's happening, right? So kind of the typical sequence is a wounded younger part, their pain gets activated. There's some social cue that takes you back in time to a wounding of a much earlier age. Managers are like, whoop, we gotta like, we gotta clean this up. We need to like, you know, do our thing. And sometimes managers get so good they even come out ahead of the wounded younger parts signaling to the system oh. they're in pain, but, but sometimes they're in close proximity. And then if the manager can't take care of stuff through their strategies, then that's when you start to see the firefighters come in and be like, okay, that didn't work. Let me take over. So how listeners would understand these in everyday terms, perfectionism, um, criticizing people, um, over-controlling, those are kind of manager strategies just broadly. And then firefighter strategies are like numbing, dissociation, uh, you know, kind of just taking yourself out of the situation, hopelessness, suicidal parts, self-harm parts. Those are all the firefighters that if all else fails, they come in and try to help us out. And I think what's so liberating about this and life-changing is that every part has good intentions. Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of people that struggle with their mental health, and if you think about mental health as just having an integrated, balanced internal world, we often seek help when we feel out of balance, right? Like Mm -hmm. one of the protectors are just like dominating our system, causing external conflict with our relationships with others. And the instant kind of fixes, just get rid of that. Right. But but from a parts perspective, you try to get rid of that and your whole system goes haywire. We can't get rid of it. Are you kidding me? Like that's a major part of our system Mm -hmm. instead of like listening to that part and helping that part understand that there actually is a wise adult self in here. But that self is kind of offline right now. Let's cultivate your ability, meaning me, Tanner, whoever is working with me more of Tanner's self to come here and work with this part and help it understand that 
you know, there's a different way and I can help you. Like I I'm going to show up and do better for our whole system and our whole world. Um, instead of just getting totally blended with that part. It, it all, it's also, it is also fascinating how, if, um, and I fully accept the premise that we all have, have parts, yeah. uh, parts of us that act out in different ways at different times when we are triggered. So when our system is, is dysregulated, it's, yeah. it's, it's haywire. I'll go back to a, a question I was um, hinting at earlier. Tanner, how the fuck do we know when we're dysregulated, when the, when it's a part that's in charge versus the wise adult, is there, are there actual physical yeah. uh, components of it? Are there, what are the mental components? Because I can see that this is the path mm-hmm. for so many people yeah. to get on track as, as you did. Yep. How does one recognize? It It's a process. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's a process. And, and it, I think they're kind of um, universal stages to it, the way I see it. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit and say that from my human development training and my trauma recovery training and my own personal experience, I, I believe the goal of recovery, and this is, this goes back to something we talked about before for everyone that feels they're carrying around pain that just is unresolved, whether they want to call it trauma, they don't want to call it trauma. It, who get right? There's just unresolved pain that gives you this chronic sense that your life isn't what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. That the the path you need to walk is one of attachment restoration. And mm-hmm. This is something I talk about as many opportunities as I can because I think it's so important for people to understand what the goal is, right? Because if we're just kind of wandering, we're like, I don't know, I just want to get better, and you're like, but just point me in a direction, right? Like, mm-hmm. give me a mm-hmm. like, where am I headed? And so for me, I always tell people you're headed towards attachment restoration. And that really means that you've restored your secure, stable attachment to yourself, like all your parts to yourself. And you're able to have a secure, stable relationship with another human. And often those track each other. The reason we don't have stable, healthy relationships with others is because internally we don't have a stable, healthy relationship to ourself, right? Like they kind of go hand in hand, but I often see people try to work on just one at a time, right? And and from my standpoint, true recovery that's going to lead you to permanent healing, you need to understand how both are going. Because if you just put yourself in a bubble and work on yourself, you're not going to be triggered because people are triggering. It's people Mm -hmm. in situations Mm -hmm. that cue the things that trigger you, right? But if you're only working on other people, it's like, well, if we just understand how to not trigger each other, I'm fine. But but that's like an artificial, like, because sure. then you change the situation, someone changes, right. and now like you don't have the tools inside to reestablish and cultivate that secure attachment to a new person or a new situation, right? So you, so you really need both. And I'm super, super passionate about that because I think people get tripped up because there's very few people in the trauma recovery space giving big picture frameworks for people. It's like, there's a few experts. I do with this. I do this. I study this, mm-hmm. but survivors are really well served by like, here's the big picture of what you need to do and why you need to do it and how you need to do it. So what you need to do is attachment restoration. In my opinion, how you do it, which is the question you ask is the first thing you need to be able to do is unblend from a trauma distortion. Mm-hmm. And so whether you call it a trigger, so like 
a trigger is like your trauma gets triggered, right? Some mm-hmm. event, some word, some something. Sometimes it's the absence of something. All of a sudden, cues to your body. Oh, we need to get our survival physiolo- physiology activated. That's when you start to see your internal system kind of a little bit going haywire. What happens when we're not aware is we just think this is us. Oh, I'm just someone who rages. Oh, I'm just someone who's like horribly critical to other people. I'm someone that just slams a door and can't have a conversation. I'm someone, you know, and you just, this is the mono mind. It's just me. Or I need to take my anxiety meds or my antidepressants or something. Right, or I just need a drink if I could just smoke. Yeah. Like, right, right, right. So like, exactly. So, so, and I, well, that's a whole other, I was talking about addiction, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so you just kind of reach for something to, to numb it, to distract it, to, to tone it down for you. So the first step is developing physiological awareness of what's happening in your body. Mind that, body awareness. Yeah. And that sounds like, well, of course, but literally when I started doing this work, like seriously started doing this work, I kid you not, I set an alarm at noon every day to be like, okay, Tanner, how do you feel? And, and I'd be hmm. like, I don't know how do I feel? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. for so long, if you grow up in a traumatizing family, it doesn't matter how the fuck you feel. Like your feelings do not count. It it doesn't matter. Like it's like an inconsequential data point. So like Mm -hmm. if you, if you are raised in an environment where your feelings are an inconsequential data point, you learn to tune them out Mm -hmm. And, and you just don't develop the awareness of like, Hey, I'm really feeling so that that is a long process for some people, especially if they're doing it independently and they're not given really potent tools to do it quickly. You can spend a lot of time just kind of like, okay, how do I feel? How do I feel? How do I feel? Then it's like the next step. And I'll just stop at the next step because it's like there's like 11 steps. But like the next step is just really tapping into trying to understand your internal system. So like who's here right now? And it's such a weird question. And every time I work with new clients, I'm like, this is such a weird question, but I want you the next time, like you feel this in your body. I want you to pause. And I want you to turn inward. I want you to say, who's here. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but you're going to be astounded. at like what comes forward for you. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I think it's neural networks that like you can storytell with and you can rewire through storytelling because mm-hmm. storytelling and memory have a huge research base, but And then you just start to get to know those parts and you start to help them see that you're here and you can actually advocate on behalf of them. But -hmm. if they blend with you entirely Mm -hmm. and you're just acting from your parts, you're going to damage so many relationships because it's not wise. It's not loving. It has an agenda. It's um, circumstantial power, hungry. It wants to, you know, control everything or blame other people. Like parts are very primitive. They're not courageous. They're not creative. They're not compassionate. So like. They're just there to protect. They're just there to protect with like very, very primitive strategies making it. And then we'll come back. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, so just our ego. That's such a comfort with your parts to be able to interact and let one of them step forward without it being a dysregulating situation. Yeah. That's not true for yeah. most of no, us. It will, it's true for everyone with work. It's true for every single human with work. No matter how complicated your system is, 
Sure. I, I agree. Everything that you've said just fits in um, so, so well. In fact, um, confession, I'm going through therapy myself. I'm going through a, a personal challenge and it's been, I've discovered in my therapy that there is uh, trauma in my background from my childhood that amounts really more to neglect than abuse. But the thing that my therapist has talked about and you talked about is the efficacy of recognizing these parts. They want to be seen, heard and recognized and spoken to. And there's actually neuroscience that indicates, as you said, that by doing this and speaking directly to them, that they are able to, to step aside, feel safe and allow the wise self to step forward. Because as you say, um, these, when the parts are driving the bus, the bus isn't really going where you want to go. I mean, it, especially if you're an adult there, um, she has a little bit different take in that these parts actually can be useful and serve us, um, when you are healthy, I agree with but, that. but I when, agree you, with that. when you're dysregulated, um, it's impossible to have really good relationships, um, because that's not their yeah. job. And, and protective parts trigger other people. Sure, yeah. sure. There was something you so, said I just want to go back to. Yeah. Um, so you said something it was more like neglect, but, and I just want to take away the but. I just want to say it was more like neglect mm. and. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad you said that because I, I, again, I don't want someone to not listen to this podcast to turn off and say, oh, I wasn't yeah. abused or, you know, what I dealt with. That's like, so I, huge. You know, That's why I just wanted to remove that butt and say, and. <laughs> sure. And, you know, even, even going into this, that, that even siblings will have different approaches or different experiences to the same Absolutely. occurrence, to the same incident. My sister and I have very different views of our childhoods. Yes. Um, I actually just posted on this because someone had reached out to me. Their sibling had recommended my podcast to them. And, you know, I think siblings sometimes are on different timelines. So mm -hmm. I always tell siblings that don't see eye to eye, like I can only imagine how painful that is because it's like further invalidation of mm -hmm. your experience. And sometimes the aligned timing is just different for somebody. They haven't had mm -hmm. that event that is just like, whoa, like that mm -hmm. is just not explainable or they're going to spend their whole life kind of offline. Like they're never right. going to wake up to it. And mm -hmm. that's some people do that, right? They just like mm -hmm. never really wake up to it, but some people just take longer, you know, just it's, it's not, it's not as, um, yeah, it's just the, the line timing is different for people. Or their sensibilities are actually different enough so that they actually experience something, um, a little bit different. Um, yeah. or like you said, maybe they shut it down, um, yeah. there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I just, so it goes back to, I think what you said about the, um, I hate to put it in cliche, but it's almost like traumas in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Right. If you, if you sense it, if you feel it, you, you experienced it back, um, as well. Yeah. Um, so this is, I want to get back to your story again. You, yeah. um, you didn't recognize that there was trauma in your past um, until you were, you were older. In fact, you talk about, you know, you married mm -hmm. and your first marriage broke up. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't aware even then no. that and you we were, were such traumatized humans. 
Yeah. And in fact, I want to read a quote um, from you. You said, despite my graduate degrees and a dream professor job, I was confused, overwhelmed and suffering intensely in my personal life from undiagnosed complex trauma. No matter how many self-help books I read on love languages and nonviolent communication or talk therapy sessions I attended or meditation apps I downloaded, nothing improved. And in fact, my sense of distress was getting worse by the day. Yeah. That is your awakening moment? Yeah. I mean, it was a long, I mean, so my very first awakening, so I had two rock, it took me two rock bottoms and mm-hmm. hopefully it only takes people one. My story is two rock bottoms or like maybe it's sequential rock bottoms. And this is, although, you know, in some ways this is why the attachment restoration framework mm-hmm. came to me because my first rock bottom was my, um, second oldest biological child woke up with a bruise on her neck from me rough handling her the night mm-hmm. before. And in the continuum of physical abuse, like I, I was just kind of like a rough handler of kids, but and, you know, so rough that I had left a bruise on my child. And, you know, I'm a professor that teaches human development. So oh. that was a, like a really rock bottom moment for me. And I was like, okay, I'm like repeating stuff from my childhood. Like this is not okay. And then that journey really started with a lot of mindfulness, a lot of like emotion regulation, not like healing work even just right. Like I was like, I have an emotion regulation issue. Like I didn't learn emotion regulations. I was really, you know, kind of solidly in the um, dialectical behavior therapy realm, CBT, like just get a hold of your emotions, um, learn to regulate them. Uh, and then it wasn't, and so I did a lot of individual work, kind of like re I didn't know parts work, but just like working internally with my inner world and felt that I had reached some level of stability. I wasn't raging at my kids anymore. I wasn't yelling anymore. I'd become a safe enough parent. But then when I got remarried, everything just came back. Like this is your second marriage, second marriage. Everything Mm -hmm. came raging back for me. Like I mean, so much so where I, I felt so flashbacked. I was like, I, it just had been like transported back in time to just mm-hmm. my first marriage. And, you know, kind of was just like, maybe this is just what marriage is like. Maybe this is just me as a partner. Right. Um, and then it wasn't until my partner came and said, like, I don't think I can do this. And the do this was be married to me. And at that point, I was like, okay, like I've, I've got to find the answer to this because you know, second marriage breaks up and you're kind of like, like, and he's, he was much healthier than my first, like, Mm -hmm. so I just, I had to start searching for some answers. So, and then it was just, I stumbled on Pete Walker's surviving to thriving book on complex trauma. I was like, I don't know if this is it, but I ordered it. And like many other people that have stumbled upon that book, I read the whole thing in a weekend, called my sister and was like, I'm sending you a book. And you know, it was interesting because talk about siblings, like I won't share too much of her story, but when she read it, her first response was, this isn't me. Like, this isn't mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of like I see some of it, but I don't see, I shouldn't say this isn't me because that was too strong. That's, that's what I remember it as. But I think, I think that's, sure. like, that's like not fair to her. I think it was more like, I see parts of it, but I don't see parts like, you know, and not fully resonating. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, this is us. We need to like, right. and she was kind of like, Oh, I don't know. Like maybe. Um, but then subsequently we've, we've kind of synced up and she's on her own healing journey related to things. But um, it was really that book. And then just 
But even with that book, I was like, now what? I, I know what right. I have, but like, now what? When was that? This was um, 2020. So this would have mm-hmm. been recent. Yeah. Like yeah. January wow. 2020, wow. maybe. So you spent from 14. Yeah. To you 44, said you're in your like 40. Yeah. yeah. All those years, 30 those years, years, 30 years in trauma, yeah. buried trauma. Very, very in a trauma based, like total. Wow. Yeah. Long, long time. But, but I was just going to say, so, you know, but then it was like, now what? And there was no easy place for me to be like, okay, let me hook into this. Like, got it, but I have, let me hook in. And I think without realizing it fully, when I started to share my story, started to want to talk about how I struggled in marriage, I didn't know it at the time when I was doing that stuff, but it evolved into, well, I have to create this for other people. Like, no one should wake up at 40 or be like going through a divorce or some major life transition, hit their rock bottom in their thirties and forties and fifties and have nowhere to turn. Like that's not acceptable to me. Um, and that's sort of what's driven a lot of my work lately is creating something so that when someone in their thirties, forties or fifties hits a rock bottom, they have like a complete community to plug into. Or sixties or seventies or right. I mean, yeah. Yes. 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 Wow. Um, you talked about, uh, and maybe we are, we kind of already covered this, but we talked about. So you were actually creating material because it wasn't available, mm-hmm. um, and you've spoken about how the medical model yeah. doesn't seem to address this. Mm-hmm. Why? So what? What is that? Why? Why not? What is the framework? Yeah, well, I think the medical model isn't, I mean, it's not a holistic, let me mm-hmm. look at your whole life, let me, you know, equip you with skills and, and ways to be in the world, let me spend more time with you, let me really mm-hmm. understand. Uh, so it's just the whole reward, funding, reimbursement uh, structure mm-hmm. of it, training structure is just not mm-hmm. one that's equipped to, to do this work. Um, and... I think to do this work well, you're not really fixing somebody. You're equipping people with process processes and frameworks and some skills that then they go off and do on their own. Hmm. I think for a lot of mm-hmm. clinicians, that's very threatening. Like they have parts that are caretaker parts, are like ego-driven mm-hmm. parts. They're like, well, no, I'm the expert. You're the patient. You're the client. And I think because I come at it from a non-clinical background, a survivor background, I'm like, no, we are our recovery coaches. Like we are the ones that do this work. Like it can't be done in an office. You can get insights from a therapist coach that like, like kind of unlock it for you. And you're like, oh, that's good. Now I can take that back. Like, oh, that's good. I needed, I needed like a little reframe of that, or I needed to see that up close, or I needed that therapeutic experience with you. But the real work of recovery is moment by moment in your day. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you just jumped to another another question that I was going to to ask you, and that is, you talk about recovery, you talk about healing. Yeah. Um, what does healing look like? Yeah. So I think healing's unburdening all the pain, 
and the wounds that your parts carry. Protective parts can carry wounds too. I have a manager part that was, you know, really responsible for a lot of wounded younger parts and had a lot of shame around that, that, that needed to be unburdened. So I think the healing is unburdening the parts of us. Sometimes that can happen through reparative experiences with other humans where, you know, they're witnessing your parts, they're, you know, kind of in relationship with your parts as well and offering them kind of redos or take twos about what's happened. Um, but that can also be done internally. So I think that's healing. And that's why I love relational healing because mm-hmm. it's all about repairing relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think recovery, the reason why I like that word is it feels to me like the act of what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So healing is the mechanism, but recovery is the set of tasks, the actions. It's, it's the, it's the verb, right? It's like the thing you're doing mm-hmm. um, to, to, and you, you, you engage in healing activities in recovery, but something about recovery, I think just elevates it to the level of kind of status that actually permanent healing needs to actually happen. Yeah. I think this talks to the, the something that you said, um, I think, again, on your website, when you said things will keep coming back up again and again, and you will constantly be in this headspace of doing mental gymnastics, trying to get your thought process back into reality. It's exhausting, humiliating and chronic. Yeah, that is the place yeah. um, where you're where you you want to get past yeah. where, where healing takes place, I guess. Is that yeah. right? You get past it through healing. Right. Yeah. So the act of recovery is to be like, I need to do what I need to do so that doesn't happen anymore. And the Mm -hmm. things I need to do are attachment restoration through relational healing. I I really love what you said about um, this being sort of a self-empowering journey because I can see, and I'm guilty of this, uh, going to my therapist and say, why do I feel like shit? Make me feel better. I can't do this. And, and their job in, to your point, it seems to be that it's not what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to replace a lack of self-worth with self-worth, but to give you tools so that you can internalize and do it yourself. Yeah. It, It is that, that seems to be kind of the work that you're, that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I am. Um, I'm not sure as many therapists as should be really take that self-empowered. Like I actually care what you're doing between sessions. I'm actually going to give you homework. I'm actually going to mm-hmm. offer you trainings. Like it, it feels a little passive to me. And I think hmm. that's why, I mean, I think there are good therapists and they're worth their weight in gold, but even a good therapist, I think their whole kind of structure isn't one of the coach, right? Like they're not, they're not trained mm-hmm. to be coaches. They're not and and coaching is just so empowering, right? Like just to really have someone be like, you got this, like we're doing mm-hmm. this, like get off the bench, get in the game, like, come mm-hmm. on now. Like, nope, 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 nope. Let's do this. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. While still compassionately sitting with somebody when the outcome doesn't happen or mm-hmm. there is a bad performance or, you know, something unexpected happens, right? But for me, the whole model needs to shift to more of like a what's happening in between sessions. Like, right. are you getting trained? Right. Where's your community? Like, what what are we doing? Right. And um, 
I don't think that urgency is typically there with therapists, at least from my experience. It's kind of like, well, we'll do some sessions and we'll see. And, you right. know, but it's never like, here's the goal. Like, let's get there. Like, let's go. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think given that most of us have wasted a lot of the prime years of our life, like, I think there's a fire in me to be like, it's not too late for any human, but it will be if you just passively spend 50 minutes a week in a therapist's right. office with no long-term plan, with no homework in between sessions, with no benchmarks to see if you're making progress. Like, like you just got to really step into the power that no one is going to care as much about this as you do. And, and like today is the youngest day we'll ever be. You right. know what I mean? Like today right. is the youngest, but we'll ever be again. So like, right. Like, <laughs> well, I, I mean, just think about it. You, you, like you said, you have this, this cocoon of these 50 minutes in a very safe environment and you're, you're, if you're good or if you're comfortable and your therapist is good, you're yeah. letting you're like, your I'm guts good. out. Yeah. You're, <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're letting your guts out. You're telling them everything. And then, um, it's just, again, a safe place. Then you go back and interact with the real world and you're triggered. You're interacting with the things that trigger you. And it's, I mean, and your, your healing isn't linear. Your recovery isn't linear. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense really. Yeah. Um, I asked a guest this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this goes to a little bit of, of kind of the big picture of what you're talking about. And it has to do with change. Um, why do you think change is so hard for human beings and so many of us, even when we are suffering? Yeah. Even when I, I imagine, you know, my personal experience, I'm perfectly aware that I'm fucked up so to speak, that I'm not operating in my highest self okay. a lot of the time. So I don't want to suffer, yet change is so difficult. Yeah. Why do you think that is? You're a developmental specialist. Yeah. I'm going to answer it from a parts perspective because our protective parts have been locked into roles that they mm. don't see a way out of. And if there's nothing internally that's working with that part that that part only sees that option. It's all it ever knows It all it's ever. So there might be another part that's like, yeah, we need to like, we shouldn't eat gallons of ice cream. Come on, let's get off the couch. Like let's mm-hmm. do something Like, let's get healthier. But it's a firefighter part. That's like seeking comfort in food. Right. Or like, nope, this is like, we have no other way. Come on. Like the whole system's counting on me for us to eat this ice cream. Like, mm-hmm. so that other part that's like, I want, might want us to be healthier gets totally blocked out because the whole system needs this firefighter to do this role. And so until there's more balance or equilibrium in a system where all parts, not just the dominant ones with their very strong strategies, get a chance to kind of be heard and voiced and and honored, change isn't likely to happen because whatever's happening is serving your internal world in some really important way. And until there's an alternative to that, that meets the same internal needs, you're just going to be repeating the same things again and again. Um, that's how no, I would answer it. No one has ever described and addressed that issue as well. I just have to tell you that is, <laughs> that makes, I mean, that is fascinating. If you think about, 
That's so fascinating. Oh, if you think about it from, from change for anyone, from the simplest thing, like you said, to stop eating ice cream at night and go out to exercise to um, leaving an abusive spouse. Yeah. Uh, or to stop drinking or something. Stop spending so much money. Like, right. Don't, don't procrastinate on work deadlines. Right. Um, you know, so many things. So recognizing that the, the resistance to change is actually serving some part that is trying to protect you right. may actually allow you to make the change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it's, it's, it's really, and, and interestingly in my own journey, there's been like stuff, like once I clicked into like, Oh, what do I like? Which part is this? Like, how, like some things have been super easy to change for me. Like what it's like, almost like a switch. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, okay, mm-hmm. cool, we're cool. And then other things, I don't quite have the other, like I haven't been able to coach that part through. And so the whole system's like, yeah, we still like the ice. I used ice cream because it's personal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my system's still like, yeah, yeah. ice cream's super good. I'm like, okay, well, until we, until we can figure this out in a different way, we're going to do the ice cream. Um, but so, so it's not, you know, it's really interesting, but it's so clear to me why that hasn't shifted for me is because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know what to offer that particular firefighter that is going to meet the needs of the other part, because I, mm-hmm. When this happens, I don't have enough self-energy mm-hmm. yet to navigate it. Um, so I'm gonna, I want to ask this question. Just occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that somebody listening to this who feels that you what you've said has really resonated and believes that they need to go on a healing journey. Yeah. Are we talking about decades of work? Are we talking yeah. about about months of work? I mean, how? how long before someone can feel some sense of or, or lessen their hopelessness uh, yeah. over their situation? This, this is such a meaningful question to me because it taps into what I said. Like I want to build something that doesn't exist because people just need to hook in. My best guess is, and, and maybe if you interview me in like five years, I'll have a more yeah. definitive answer. Um, I think with the right support and the right tools, two years. Hmm. Like if you're all in, you're like, this is going to be a top priority in my life right now. I'm going to invest Mm -hmm. at the level that would be a top priority, Mm -hmm. like time, money, all of it. Like I'm in and I'm in and I'm in two years. Hmm. That's been your experience as well as personal experience, because you feel you've actually gone really far along your, your journey. You feel like, I mean, I had some buildup. I mean, so 2013 was my first rock bottom, but I just didn't, I wasn't hooked into what I needed. Mm-hmm. So like there could have been some things that helped me get a little bit mm-hmm. farther, a little bit faster. Um, but I think two years. Yeah. Okay. Best Good. Um, one of the things that I love about you that makes you so attractive is your vulnerability. Um, on your podcast, you cuss, you cry, you laugh, um, you pause. Um, I even myself nodding, I found myself nodding my head listening to one of your recent podcasts and even, even shedding a tear with you over how raw your confessions are. So I want to thank you Mm. for that, but I I just, what has your podcast meant to you? Yeah, so much. Um, interestingly, none of my parts have like had any resistance to the podcast. You know, some people will say like, how do you do? I'm like, well, I don't know. All my parts are so on board. Like they love the podcast. They're all like, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Give us a microphone. Mm -hmm. Um, So that helps. Right. Like that. I don't have any part that feels kind of like, you know, because even on this podcast with the details of sort of how my parent handled it, 
there was a part that was like, don't talk about it. It's not safe because we don't want that person to show right. up in your life. So, but on my podcast, when it's like, I'm kind of, you know, behind the mic and, and you know, kind of controlling the conversation a little bit more, all my parts are so excited to get a microphone and talk mm-hmm. about this stuff. So I think there's that. I think it has meant for me just restoring connection to parts of me. And I mean, I'm using parts more broadly now, not in like how we've used it mm-hmm. best, but mm-hmm. like aspects of me and my personality that mm-hmm. had just gotten lost. And what people see on the podcast or hear on the podcast, like that's me. That's mm-hmm. like me in my purest form like all of it. And so it's, it's just this incredible outlet just to show up and narrate my experience. And I do feel in ways I can't quite describe that in some episodes, in some moments, it's like some channel opens up and like, I I know it to be true. Like I, I know I knew these things, but I didn't know I knew them in the way that I knew them until I started channeling whatever was coming through. So it's also this experience of, wow, like that was in me. Like I didn't know that was in me or I didn't know it quite like lined up in that way. Um, So even if I have the notes in front of me, even if I'm kind of prepared, I do have these moments where it does feel like, the connection I have to the listening community, which is so beautiful and so deep and just so loving, inspires something in me that's bigger than I could ever create on my own. And that is the like profound act of co-creation with mm-hmm. other humans. Like, and, and that blows my mind. Like that just like gets to mm-hmm. another level. Where I'm like, I can't, I don't even know how to put words into that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's obvious. It's obvious that you are showing up in your podcast. Like I said, I was struck by, by the sincerity, the vulnerability, like I said, that comes out in your, in your podcast. It's not yeah. like you're trying to be a celebrity talking about these things at all. Um, yeah. Because like I said, on one, you were crying. I mean, you, yeah. you went away for a bit and and had to, and that is deeply personal. I also think I have this theory that somehow podcasting for some of us is there's a muse. It's a way for our muse, our creative muse, to to come out and yeah. and do yeah. that. Like I, you know, I have to confess when I have a great interview, um, a great conversation like this, I am so jazzed. I am. Yeah. I feel like my soul is so aligned with with what's going on, but, um, yeah, purpose and meaning. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I have a little bit of a personal story too, that I think kind of connects to the podcast yeah. as well in terms of what it means yeah. to me. I have this really, um, very touching memory of being a child and I don't know how old I was. I probably was like eight or nine and I had a clock radio. It was red. And I remember I would listen to it and Casey Kasem used to do a countdown mm-hmm. and he used to like read, letters from listeners mm-hmm. and say something like, Oh, I'm sending this out to, mm-hmm. you know, Annabelle who's in mm-hmm. Illinois who mm-hmm. just broke up with her, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it was, the dedication, right? Like you do these dedications. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and I could almost like physically feel it. I remember thinking like, I want to go there. I want to get in this radio And I just want whatever that universe is that's so much bigger than this house with all this pain and this heartache, like 
I want to be out mm. on the radio. Like, what is that? And I think it just stuck with me that there's something about radio or podcasting that you can listen and you don't have a visual mm-hmm. and you're just like transported to somewhere else. But there's mm-hmm. so much space for that vision mm-hmm. to be yours because the inputs you're receiving are single. It's mm-hmm. just audio. Mm-hmm. So it allows like other imagination, imagination, like inputs to kind of take you where you want to go. And so often I will get messages from listeners that will say, I was listening to your podcast wall. Mm-hmm. And then they'll create this scene of where it took them in their life and how it kind of transcended their everyday life and connected them to something larger. And that is just so personal to me and just feels mm-hmm. so redemptive in some way that the podcast, like I say this in other places, but it feels like coming home and, and I mm-hmm. absolutely love it. It is a labor of love, as you know, being a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot of work on the back end. I'm not going to mm-hmm. lie. <laughs> and you're doing them weekly, but it, it, it's interesting you say that because, so I was going to ask you, is um, Dr. Tanner Wallace going to be on YouTube with her, with her podcasts? I don't think so. That's the trend. That's, know, you see that. I know, I know. And I, you know, I sometimes will create video clips for other people that are on my mm-hmm. podcast and give them to them and they'll put them on their Instagrams. But yeah, I don't, I think there's something about the audio only um, that just really touches me, at least for now. Least uh, for I haven't, now. I hadn't thought about that. It is a different, a different way, a different system, a way of reacting right. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple more questions. You have yeah. both, um, you've started some programs yeah. um, and, or you put the content out. Your Instagram yeah. is amazing. I love and, Instagram. Yeah. And you're really <laughs> good at it. You put out some really amazing content. I think you have Thank it you. Have dialed. So you have both one-on-one coaching around trauma and a virtual program called Reveal Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, on complex trauma. Can you talk about um, let's, let's talk about your one-on-one coaching first. Tell them, yep. tell us about that. What's, what do you do there? Yeah. So there are 90 minute sessions because mm-hmm. I think you need 90 minutes to really like get into a session, create some connection, um, and then have some time to debrief and think about what are next steps. So I, I really love the 90 minutes because it's, it, it feels safe. It feels like it can hold all the things that need to be held without being rushed. Like I never feel rushed in a 90 minute session. So it's really critical and important to me. Um, usually it's like 15 minute check-in, what's on someone's heart. Um, and then we just dive into parts work. So I, mm-hmm. I operate, I use parts work, IFS, mm-hmm. um, and then 15 minutes debriefing homework. Uh, mm-hmm. And increasingly, well, I shouldn't say increasingly, I have moved into like private um, kind of containers. So like someone has a one session with me and then it's like, okay, let's do nine sessions because mm-hmm. I just want people to fully commit <laughs> to the process and something about being like, yes, I'm paying for nine sessions upfront. I'm all in mm-hmm. like you show up differently. Right. Cause you're like, I did it. I paid for this. I gotta show up. Like I'm here. Right. <laughs> and right. energetically for me, then I can hold a small set of people and I'm like, I love you guys. Like we're doing this and I mm-hmm. get to know them really well. And the ins and outs of like partners and custody and finances and just like the whole of it. So when I show up, it feels to me like they're fam, like you're like, you know, family, like I care about you. Like, I love you now. Like I want you to succeed, which 
is so different than a traditional therapist model. And right. I, I hold no, like my husband's actually in a, a doctoral program that trains therapists and counselors, you know, and at first he's like, I don't think you're violent, you know, like, I mean, he's not like that, but he's just like, wow, it's so different. Like, but I'm like, I don't care. Like, I love my clients. Like there's, I'm, I'm a free agent here. Like I can do what right. I want because I think you need that love. Like that love mm-hmm. is so important for healing. Um, so I feel very strongly about that with my one-on-ones, like that it's kind of, they're, they're for a commitment for a time period to work together, to build a relationship, to move the healing forward. And not because someone's going to end up needing me, but because we can co-create something for that human. And through that I grow too, right? Like it's, it's, Mm. we're co-creating something for both of us, right? So that I can show up as a stronger, wiser, better guide continually, my own evolution. Um, So that's the one-on-one, which I'm so passionate about. I could literally do one-on-ones like 11 hours straight and not be tired. Wow. Um, And then, yeah. So the, the programs I am like, my mind is like buzzing because I've had some latest breakthroughs of like, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change everything and everything's going to be live and they're going to be shorter and mm-hmm. people can stack them depending on where they are in their healing journey. Because I think I said earlier, like, I really think there's kind of 11 tasks you need to complete and mm-hmm. they, they, they're kind of sequential in some way. Like you can loop back around, but some are individual, some are group, some are like out in the real world, you're doing stuff with your current relationships, but you need a group to, to debrief. And so I've mm-hmm. really, um, over the last few weeks been like, I get it. Like there needs to be all different offers for people that are doing all different tasks because they require different structures and like r- basic knowledge of having achieved the stuff before <laughs> to be mm-hmm. able to do the harder stuff later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm super excited. So that, that will all be kind of like debuting in January of, of this next year, 2022. It's really exciting. I'm uh, super excited you. about it. Can yeah. You? <laughs> uh, you, the, when you were, when you were talking about your, your one-on-one sessions, I was just thinking, I said, this sounds very different than therapy because yeah. you're, you're not a therapist, you're a coach. Yeah. Yeah. How, where's yeah, I like the line? Have, I, I have a lot of coach like tendencies. Yeah. I like to officially think of myself as a guide. Oh, okay. Yeah which is like a semantics thing, but I'm like, I'm a guide right. because, you know, like I'm guiding you through, but I do coach. So like, maybe it's like a guide coach because <laughs> I do just naturally have a very like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> but it does, it doesn't matter what, what you call it, no, it as long as you don't call it therapy. Cause it's not, you're not, that's not your focus. So there's, yeah. there's a, um, there's a line there, um, a little bit, little bit different. And yeah, where, where, what is the line? Where's the line between therapy and coaching? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd probably ask a therapist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to. I have to. They probably have like statutes on it. Um, okay. So I just have to ask you if, um, what is something that uh people who know you really well know about you, but the rest of us don't. What's one thing you'd want to share? That I can be super goofy. Mm. And I feel like that's not something that yet I've been able to figure out how to channel it publicly. Like I try Mm -hmm. and some other part comes in. It's like, no, don't do that. Or like, no, that's stupid. Oh, (laughs) So... Those of you that follow Instagram or will start following yeah. me, you can see 
if the glasses, the whole glasses thing. Is... Yeah, that was kind of goofy in the glasses. Yeah, fell, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. what's bad here? Yeah. But that was a little flavor of it. Yeah. That was, but there's so much more that is, is will come out. Um, and then I think the other piece that my partner sees and has seen, like all my two adult partners, mm-hmm. um, is I have a super sensual, sexy side. And I haven't known how to show up Mm-hmm. with that part in a way that feels safe for me mm-hmm. publicly and externally. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a goofy side to me and a way more like sexual sexy side of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward and why I love Instagram as a content creator. Cause it's like, you're, you're trying to um, authentically communicate the realest version of you for the consumption of others in a way, right. That feels safe and whole and yeah. all in the up and up. And so I'm really looking forward to in 2022 trying to figure out how to seamlessly bring those into my Instagram account again in a way that feels safe, authentic, all of those things. Well, they say they say that many people on it present just the good parts of themselves on Instagram. It isn't actually a place where a lot of people feel about being authentic, but. Yeah, that's not you. But yeah. I get the sense that you're very authentic on Instagram. I've grown into it. Yeah, I've got yeah. probably at first. Like, I think probably with any content creator, sometimes you try a few things and you're like, that didn't feel quite comfortable, but it doesn't mean it's not authentic. So sometimes I think like the discomfort gets communicated. Sure. And then you get like more and more comfortable. But but yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it and it's been interesting. I know we're almost at time, but just one thought I had about this, it's been very interesting. My two oldest children are also on Instagram and follow me mm-hmm. and them reflecting back to me like how they see me showing up has been so fascinating because Mm. it's like they're witnessing my own evolution. Like they're coming to be like, wow, this is my mom. And like, this is like, she's growing and she's changing and she's talking about things she never talked about. So it's been a very. So they're supportive of you. They're not critical. No, not critical, curious and sometimes Mm. confused. And then just like kind of sitting with it and being like, Oh, Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like interesting. So that's also a layer to it that I find very fascinating. I keep my kids very separate. There's so much I would love, love, love to share about my kids and healing and trauma and all of that. But it's just, it's not, they're not old enough to understand what they're sure. agreeing to. One um, day. One day. Yeah. yeah. One day. Um. Gosh, thank you so much. I feel like for, I could talk to you for hours. Well, I'm I'm hours. with you. We could have a, a marathon <laughs> podcast here. I, I have just so much loved getting to know you better and hearing about your journey. Um, tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, easiest place is Instagram at Dr. Tanner Wallace. Everything that's happening in trauma recovery, me and you know, my life that I make public um, sure. is all on that account. That's like my I'm on it all the time. I love it. So that's the best place to find me. Thank you again so much for being uh, my guest on this podcast. You have graced us. This is one of one of my favorite interviews. I just appreciate so much how uh, how open and sincere you were. And I, I wish you well with everything that you're doing in your healing journey. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and Yeah, I guess I would just say to any listener that heard or resonated with any part of this, like any of the content you heard, just, you know, keep open hearted exploration because there's so much out there that could be helpful or even just small pieces of it could really change um, your life. 
and how you experience it. So I hope that we've put out content that people can find, you know, a, a space to grow in um, and, and seek out maybe their next opportunity for just how, how to show up and build a life that they love. I, I have no doubt that you have touched some people through this. And I hope that, that, uh, that we, we get a lot of downloads that people will, will listen to this because your, your impact could, could be significant. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having me. Wow. That was my conversation with Dr. Tanner Wallace. I hope you enjoyed meeting her. You know, I often have trouble summarizing, putting into a couple sentences, my feelings about, about conversations like this, wrapping them up in nice little bows. So I'm not going to. I'm just going to say I hope you enjoyed meeting Dr. Tanner Wallace. I'll include links in the show notes as to where you can find her uh, on Instagram at Dr. Tanner Wallace and her website, as well as some of the resources we spoke about and some of the therapists that she mentioned have been instrumental in her healing journey, just in case uh, it might be of interest to you. If you have any questions or want to reach out to me, you can find me on the interwebs at Christian R. Ward on social media or at my website, ChristianRWard.com. I promise to respond to every inquiry. If you enjoyed today's episode or any of the other episodes of Interesting Humans, I would be really, really awed and grateful if you would write a review on iTunes. It allows us to show up in the algorithm, move up in searches, And it just might help us get to that magic goal for me. My next one is 10,000 downloads. As always, I am deeply grateful you stopped by Interesting Humans and allowed me into your ears and your head. Intro and outro music is provided by Wilds. Uh, Emma has come up with some new music. A new album has been released this year. She's doing other things. You can find her on social media. I'll include links in the show notes to where you can find her as well. So um, I guess that's it. Let's wrap this puppy up. Thank you again for listening to Interesting Humans. Make it a great day.